interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Uh, lunchtime is going to come. Uh, lunch is a dangerous time for, for me, in part because there are inevitably going to be some desserts. Right. And I'm going to have this conversation, uh, mostly internal conversation. You may not hear this conversation between these two voices. Uh, uh, one of them will go something like this. You've worked hard all morning long. You've been standing. You deserve it. Right? Just take that brownie. Uh, and the other voice will be, it's the middle of winter. You get virtually no exercise when it's cold outside. Stop it, right? So uh, uh, this, uh, this set of voices, it's not always clear which side's going to win, especially if there's not a third voice, namely my wife, uh, standing there close at hand. Right? Now, the, the reason I open this uh, uh, as a, uh, a kind of window for us as we think about the second chunk of material in Genesis, is because there's a, a kind of narrative of temptation going on here uh, in this second account. And it's a strange conversation. It's a, and it is a conversation, if you will, uh, uh, where there are some competing voices. And I want, I want you to capture it. It's not a theological treatise, an abstract treatise, any more than the uh, uh, that the temptation I'll have when I see those brownies afterwards uh, is really uh, a uh, uh, um, to be dis- depicted best by uh, abstractions. Now, I feel the angst of uh, of that moment uh, in an ordinary uh, way, right. uh, and so these. Brownies, which are sinfully delicious, in that kind of language, right? So that temptation is is uh, attractive. It has a kind of pull. It it kind of draws us. It invites us. Yeah. I mean, late at night, I'll I'll tell my wife after we've gone upstairs. Uh, I, oh, I forgot something downstairs. Right, and I'll I'll go buy that that uh, plate of brownies or the freezer with the ice cream in it, and I go by once, and I'll look around. You know, you know you've been there, uh, whatever your unique temptations are. And I have this, this uh, the longer the conversation goes on, uh, the, the harder it is. Uh, the more you resist temptation, the harder temptation actually is. It, it's when I, I go by the first time and just grab the brownie, uh, temptation's over, it's gone. Right? Don't have to worry about it any longer. Well, there's something uh, 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 that we miss sometimes in the story here of Genesis 2 and especially 3. If we don't capture this, uh, the, 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 the anxieties of temptation, the stages, if you will, uh, uh, what, what I've called earlier the narrative quality. Now, uh, Keep that in mind. Keep that little picture in mind. We'll come back to it uh, in a moment. 
the chunk of material in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, structured, I think, as a hymn, most nearly, or seven stanzas, this liturgy uh, uh, in the temple, uh, has a very, uh, it's a very different template that we then find in Genesis 2, 4 to the end of chapter 3, the next chunk of material. Uh, the highlight of the first chunk of material in this grand overture before the symphony gets going, the crescendo, shall we say, is the Sabbath, this grand and glorious, this exaltation. You feel it there in this first chunk of material. What's the pinnacle uh, of this second chunk of material? Quite clearly, when she takes and eats the fruit. That's the climax of this second chunk of material. right? So the, the one is high and exalted. The other is why did you do it kind of material uh, here. Now, what's interesting about this second chunk of material, 2-4 to the end of chapter 3, is I think it's also structured uh, numerically. That is, there's seven episodes. I won't have time to explain them at any great length, offend it, but uh, I think it is uh, pretty straightforward. It goes something like this. Uh, God creates Adam, the generic name for man, although it becomes a name as well here in the second name, God names, uh, 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 gives a name, but it creates Adam and his environment. Uh, what's the, uh, the end of chapter three? God banishes him from that environment, right? So he, he puts him in and then the end of the story, he banishes them. So you have this, uh, beginning and ending that kind of resonate, uh, with each other. Uh, the second episode, uh, God takes care of Adam's loneliness. This is a very interesting part of the story at this point, right? Adam is not made to be by himself. Right? Uh, uh, the, the only thing that's missing, before the fall anyway, is this partner, the sense of belonging to another. It's not good. So the story, and it's a, it's a poetic account, actually, of Eve being created from Adam. It's a very interesting instance of uh, Hebrew parallel uh, poetry, actually, uh, there at the end of chapter 2. Very well structured. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Uh, you, you know that the account uh, for another time, another place. Uh, now, uh, if, if that's the second part of this uh, account, this uh, narrative... Uh, it also echoes to the uh, towards the end, not so much the banishment that goes with the first, but he creates Eve uh, uh, here, if you will, part of there as a partner to fulfill. The, uh, then, after Eve's taken the fruit out, you know, the curse, what does Adam do? It, it's it's her fault. I want you to know that God, it's it, it, she gave me the fruit, and what's Eve say? It's classic as well, right? The devil made me do it, right? Deceived me. So here we have them created for each other, and the echo of it in now corrupted form is that they blame each other. They, they don't take responsibility. They, are, they, they, they now uh, separate from each other. The third part of the episode, uh, the one we're probably most familiar with, in this second chunk of material, the temptation 
uh, uh, piece uh, where Eve and uh, this snake, it's kind of an unusual narrative, isn't it? I, I haven't met talking snakes myself recently, uh, have this conversation. Uh, you know, did God really say that sort of thing? We'll talk more about that. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, but then uh, after she takes and eat uh, comes the... the the uh, rationalization uh, for uh, uh, the fall, for this uh, act of uh, taking and eating. So God puts them in, banishes them. Uh, God takes care of Adam's loneliness uh, and then curses them uh, in their... God uh, provides a partner, uh, they blame uh, each other. Right at the heart, then the pinnacle, the climax, really it's the anti-climax... Uh, you're thinking if you're like me, I wouldn't have taken that fruit. Right? I would have done it differently. Right? But, you know, why do I take that brownie? Or why did I say that unkind thing to my daughter when she was complaining? Right? Why? Uh, I don't know sometimes. I, I just do. Right? Sin doesn't always have a clear explanation. It's rather mysterious. And sometimes when I dissect it, I say, why did I do that? Now, I can tell you why my daughter sinned or why my wife sinned, right? I, I, you know, I can provide a psychological profile that explains it. But in terms of my own experience of sin, whether it's anger, uh, whether it's um, stereotyping somebody, there's some deep mystery going on. Right? I do it. And in fact, it's far better just to admit it, right? I mean, why doesn't Adam afterwards say, I'm guilty? You know, when I have a good fight, a really good fight in my marriage, and we argue a good bit, my wife and I do. Uh, You know, there's some marriages that you never argue. Uh, I I couldn't be in one like that. Uh, uh, But uh, when when there is forgiveness, this is uh, maybe just a little plug for... uh, uh, Miroslav's book that Carl mentioned, uh, Miroslav Wolf's uh, The End of Memory. It's about when does forgiven, forgiveness mean forgetfulness and when is forgetting not forgiveness? Uh, uh, well, anyway, the, the point about uh, my wife and I arguing, uh, there's nothing more profoundly satisfying than when I say, not enough, will you forgive me? And there is forgiveness. Right? And there's something just really sweet it's when I say, you know, I, I'm not really, I didn't do anything wrong, you know. And you, you, you storm out and you let it go on for a couple of days and you just, you just hold the grudge. So much better just to get, get it over with and say, I'm sorry. But there's something really weird about that for most of us. Anyway, uh, so the, the, the symmetry here is what I'm trying to draw in this second uh, table, that there is a, a kind of symmetrical account, a bell curve, if we might uh, picture the, the literary structure of this second count. It is, I think, very well crafted. It is the first of the toldoths. It's the first of the stories. Uh, 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 go with me just uh, for a moment uh, to 2.4. That's why this is such a, uh, for many uh, commentators, uh, the beginning of the second account. These are the generations. There's the Hebrew term told off, the, the generations, the stories. Right? My parents 
their life. My grandparents, that, that's a kind of told-off story. You tell it generationally. Uh, the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Uh, a whole course here in this one verse, but I, w- I won't give you that whole course. But notice the inversion of the phrase heavens and earth. The author knew what he was doing. For the first account is really, the first chunk of material, Genesis 1, is about the heavens. Everything happens top down from the divine voice, the divine will, the divine intention, and we are created. The second account is the account of the earth and the heavens. So the focus becomes, if you will now, history. The story of sin, actually. Uh, It is uh, a narrative. It has a plot, has characters that are named. It has twists and turns. Now, it is an unusual narrative by all accounts. uh, I've mentioned before I haven't had much experience with talking snakes. Uh, And I don't have uh, these uh, trees in my backyard uh, like evidently are in this uh, story, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What kind of tree was it? The history of interpretation on the tree of the knowledge of good is very weird and wacky, right? Uh, you have some medieval accounts actually suggesting that that's actually a symbol of sex. Now, I, you, I'll let you fill in the blanks there. Uh, but uh, just to say that this story nonetheless has really interesting symbols in it. It is, I think, a story, named characters, a plot, a climax, a, a, a denouement to it. Uh, but it is a really, it's a story not like the ones you and I normally uh, inhabit. Right? Uh, evil is actually living here. It speaks. Uh, it's alive. But it's a parasite. Right? We take it seriously in that regard, but it is unlike the divine life. Now, uh, uh, one last uh, little piece here to keep in mind as we read this uh, second chunk of material is uh, Luke chapter 4, which is Luke's account of Genesis 3 with Jesus instead of Adam and Eve. Uh, And that uh, you find the temptation narrative of Jesus uh, in Matthew 4 also. Uh, slightly different uh, than Luke 4. I'm going to use the Luke account uh, uh, because it it latches on to the same framework of Genesis uh, uh, 3. Luke 4, Jesus, after he's been baptized, uh, and interestingly that John has baptized him in the Jordan, Genesis 3, excuse me, Luke 3. Uh, But really what Luke 3's baptism is, this grand story, the heavens opening up. And Jesus is baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit. And the the baptism of John is to identify Jesus with us. He now takes on a mark that he belongs to humankind, John's baptism. Uh, the divine baptism is that he also belongs to God. Uh, 
for God says in this baptismal account, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Luke has the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Matthew puts the genealogy of Jesus right at the beginning for, for lots of reasons. Matthew's genealogy, quite different from Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Matthew wants a genealogy that makes a legal claim, likely going through Joseph. Right? Uh, uh, that Jesus is the one who inherits the promises of David and Abraham, the two key figures in, uh, in the Matthean uh, genealogy. Luke... Luke's genealogy is unlike any genealogy we found in the ancient world. It takes Jesus back through David, probably following Mary's account, uh, back to Abraham. But Luke now takes us all the way back to Adam in the genealogy. But Adam's not the last one in the genealogy. God is. God's never included in a genealogy that we've ever found except this one. It's very interesting, right? That Jesus has a genealogy that roots him in the Adamic story, the story of Adam, and in the divine story, God. Very interesting. Now, the reason I mention this is because Luke mentions it as the prelude to the temptation. Right after the genealogy, the Spirit whisks Jesus out into the desert, a divine mission, This is not Jesus' own choosing. He's taken on a mission out into the desert uh, there at the beginning of chapter 4 in Luke, and he meets the devil himself. Highly stylized account in Luke 4. And it happens in three stages. Uh, Three temptations, if you will. Uh, Three passing by the brownies, if you will. Uh, Now, I want to suggest that Luke knows uh, Genesis, Genesis 3, and that there are three stages in the temptation. Uh, Now, not by Adam. Adam ought to have been there. He was, actually. He's standing right beside Eve. There's no doubt in the text. Uh, But suffice it to say that the text uh, narrates this temptation in three stages. These are not abstract uh, kind of premises. It's just a three parts of the conversation of sin, of temptation. So, great parallels. Where does Jesus uh, refrain uh, the devil's um, approach? Uh, by citing Holy Scripture. And all of the scripture that he cites comes from Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8. What's going on there? Israel in the wilderness. So really we have three stories that Luke is connecting for us. Genesis 3, Israel in the wilderness, and the temptation of Jesus. Three uh, kind of pieces there. And, And they all, I think, highlight each other. They illuminate the similarities, but also the differences. Now, you shouldn't gamble. But if if you were to take a bet as to who was going to be obedient, pass by the brownies, right? and who was going to fail, right? I, I can predict which one of my kids uh, is going to give in to certain kinds of intimidations and which ones won't. Right? We know each other. Well, now, suppose you took a, 
uh, just a, a glance back, Adam and Eve, it, they've got everything. Right? Everything in the garden is theirs. All the fruit they want. Right? They have each other. God's present with them. God has made them. Jesus is all by himself in the desert. Right? Not a garden, in the desert, by way of contrast here. He's out there 40 days without food. I, I go one meal, and I'm in trouble. Right? 40? Just, just a, a thought experiment, because it can't be any more than that for most of us. Right? 40 days. Imagine if you came across some food. What would you do after 40 days without it? Right? The devil himself comes at Jesus. Comes at Jesus. And Adam and Eve, this is a little snake on the ground talking to them. Right? Who, if you had to gamble, which side is going to cave? Right? No doubt about it. You're expecting Jesus to fail. You're expecting Adam and Eve to succeed. In fact, it's the reverse. Now, the, the, the little pastoral note here is you who have much are much more likely to fail. You who have less are much more, less likely uh, uh, to fail. Right? This inverse proportion of affluence and poverty. I think it's an important uh, uh, theme, although I'll just leave it uh, there. Uh, Israel in the middle as the kind of interpretive uh, bridge between Adam and Eve on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Israel is in the desert, yes, but they've seen the great acts of the living God that has brought them out of Egypt after 400 years. Right? The waters have been parted. The enemies have been drowned. I don't care how you account for this. This is a remarkable exodus out of Egypt. Right? Israel uh, had to know when God brought food from the skies, the manna, or the water from the rock, that he was going to care for them. I mean, if it were me out there in the desert, I would have no problem, no worries. Well, not, not so fast. Not so fast. Israel whines and complains, just like you, just like me. I never have enough. I never have enough. Why? Again, we misunderstand who we really are. And that's what Israel illuminates for us, what Adam and Eve illuminate for us, but also, we'll do this much more tomorrow morning, why Jesus illuminates who we really are. So, I want you to get depressed a little bit today, because there's hope coming tomorrow. Has God said, has God said, first stage in the temptation, if you are the Son of God, the devil says to Jesus in Luke 4. Tell this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God. Well, now, what has God just said to Jesus in the Lucan account? You are my beloved Son, right, in whom I am well pleased. Now, 40 days in the wilderness, the devil coming at him. If I'm there, I'm thinking, that's right. I don't want to be the son of God if this is what it means. Right? I'm starved to death, out in the desert, the devil himself coming at me. 
But here the, this, uh, this voice in the ear is, Jesus knows God's word is trustworthy. And it's more real than the reality that he sees with the eyes of the flesh. It's that word which constitutes his being. You are my beloved son. He cites Deuteronomy 8.3 as a response to Satan's temptation. You should... Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone. Israel in the wilderness. Moses says to them, you shall not live by bread alone. Immediately after, as a commentary on the episode with the manna. God has given them bread from heaven. But this unique thing about this manna, uh, you weren't supposed to take too much. One day's worth. Now, uh, 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 God knew the temptation, right? I mean, I'd be stuffing my pockets because I'm worried about tomorrow if that manna doesn't come, right? But what happens to the manna you stuff in your pocket? It spoils. It's, it stinks, right? It smells because what it shows is the fact that you don't trust God himself to be your security, right? You trust rather in the things of this world. And so Jesus says you're not to trust uh, in that uh, and that what you see, but that which you don't see. You're to live, as Moses says, uh, uh, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God was to be trusted. Now, what, what does the little serpent, this little snake, say to Eve? I think Adam's right there beside her. Has God really said that you cannot eat from this tree? Was it really God that said these things? I mean, maybe it was your voice. Right. I mean, don't you often say that at conversation to yourself? Does God really want me to tell the truth here? Right. Sometimes, well, I'll let you play out that story. Right. Um, every indication that Eve understands in this uh, kind of... Uh, a highly stylized story, nonetheless, that God has said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only thing, in fact, we know about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that God has said, don't eat of it. Which ought to tell us what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually is. It's the divine voice that separates good and evil. It's, It's that divine prerogative alone that distinguishes good and evil. It's not... Adam and Eve to be the moral arbiters of their universe. This is the point. It's a tree that names as a uh, 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 as many have said uh, it's a tree that names good and evil. And that's the tree Adam and Eve are not to eat of. Right? It's not theirs to name good and evil. Now, Eve does respond, from the trees of the garden, the rest of them, we can eat. But that tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Yeah, mostly right. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt to some extent. But I want to just pick up a little clue. The tree is in the middle of the garden. Why is it in the middle? Why, why is it not out of the periphery? 
In the middle is where God resides. I mean, it's kind of symbolic uh, literary form that says God's presence is that which defines that which is good, that which is not. To be near God, to be near the middle, is to have life. It's to be far away from God, is to have death. It's a strange, if you will, spiritual geography that's present throughout the scriptures. To be close to God is to have life. God is life. Not only is the fact that God gives life, but God is life. Life is a gift given. But gift given is God in this instance. Life is, is not independent of the being who is life. The greatest fear of the Jew was to see God face to face. The greatest hope of the Jew was to see God face to face. If you understand that conflict, you understand our own situation as well. Uh, uh, We beseech God to be present with us each time we gather to worship. And mostly our tendency is to suppose... Of course God would want to be around a people like this, right? I'm pretty nice after all. Right? Uh, I dress nice, to, uh, uh, these sorts of things. I had a, uh, a colleague once of mine, a, uh, a Chinese colleague, say to me, he was stunned the first time he worshipped at a church in North America. Nobody took off their shoes, right? Everybody's informal. It's kind of like howdy-doody, you know, God. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of here. Of course you're here too. There's something about the fear of the living God, right? That in his presence, my my very existence is fragile and it's stable. So it's it's this twin sense in which as I come into God's presence, I recognize I am not God. My existence is not an end in its own right. It's fragile. It's contingent. It's It's dependent and enduring because God is life. Our tendency often is to make God into um, a a partner with a co-equity stake in this business of ours, right? A co-pilot that runs the ship when I can't or something of that sort, you know. We need to disabuse ourselves of these metaphors, if I might say it that way. God is not simply a partner. God is not simply another piece of furniture in the universe. God's godness is different than our existence. He breathes life. Without breath, I am dead. Very important. Second temptation. The second kind of uh, narrative quality of this conversation. Is God really God? Or maybe we could say, who will you really serve? Will you serve yourself? Will you serve God? Something of that sort. We can paraphrase it however we'd like. Right? Satan says to Jesus... Next, if you worship before me, 
All the kingdoms of this earth will be yours. Now, who's Satan to give that to him anyway? I, I, I mean, it, I think it's a preposterous lie. This earth, the kingdoms of this earth, belong to God. They're not on lease to the devil. Right? But the hubris of the devil here expressed is the same hubris you and I have, that this earth is ours. And its kingdoms can be yours if you do the right thing. Jesus says uh, in response, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He repudiates Satan's authority. He also affirms the mission, his mission to serve the Father rather than serve himself. If I were Jesus, um, we'd all be in trouble. But uh, in that instance, my, if I'm the Messiah, if I'm God in the flesh, I'm thinking, I'm going to snap the fingers. I don't care about you, Satan. These are my kingdoms. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him to straighten up and fly right. But that's actually not what Jesus says. He doesn't assert his divine prerogative. And there's something really important about that. That Jesus, insofar as he submits to the will of his Father, the mission given, expresses something very deep about the nature of God. That deep within the very being of God is this desire to delight in others. Now, the citation is actually from Israel, I mean, excuse me, from Deuteronomy 6, when Israel, uh, um, looking forward to the coming of the promised land, right? not only does God deliver them out of bondage, but he promises them a land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land, Moses tells them, there shall be all sorts of creaturely comforts. Maybe not flat screen TVs or, you know, four bedrooms or whatever, but there'll be cities that you have not built. There'll be cisterns that you have not created. There'll be houses that you have not built. Moses says, do not be seduced by these things and go follow the gods of the people who inhabit that land. You are to serve, here's Jesus' words, you are to serve the Lord your God only. The great temptation is if I'm like the world, I can have all the the wealth of the world that goes along with it. If I cheat a little on my taxes, like everybody else does, I have a little bit more money in the bank account at the end of the day. And that's, that's a good thing. Or you fill in the blank for your own temptations. But here, if we are to serve the Lord our God only, this exclusive uh, uh, mandate to find our sole unique identity in God, then cheating our taxes is, 
is uh, the furthest thing from our minds and our hearts. Because we know God provides. He really does. Though we don't often live that way. The second temptation to Adam and to Eve. Uh, The snake says to them, look, you're not really going to die if you eat that fruit. In fact, if you eat that fruit, you shall be as God. I think he's telling the truth, actually. In fact, that's what the image language of Genesis 127, they they are like God. Uh, They assert moral responsibility. They act, they speak, they create. But, of course, the subtleness of this uh, conversation is that uh, not merely that you will be like God, but that you will be God in your own eyes. You shall be as God. You shall determine right and wrong for yourself. You will determine that which is good in your own eyes. You will decide your own destiny. The half-truth in this is that they do reflect. They mirror, they image God. They are like God. But the half-ness of this truth is the claim that they are not God. And therein is this really insipid temptation to suppose you are the arbiter of all the big questions of life. Um, A final temptation, and moving uh, a little more quickly. Has God really said it? Can you really trust God? Is the word the living word? Or is it merely God's word and you've got your own word? Second, um, who, who is God? Are you God or is God God? I mean, obviously, the first two are connected, uh, first two t- stages of this temptation. Whose glory are you going to seek? The third temptation, likewise, uh, I, I want to be careful somehow to separate them as if they don't. the third stage doesn't have anything to do with the second stage. The third stage is uh, who's first? Who's glory? Who's the ultimate? Who's the defining part of the relationship? Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now he, that is the devil, cites scripture. That the the Messiah will be protected by the divine angels. Um, The angels shall guard you. That's what your father, Jesus, said. Let's Put them to the test. Let's see if it works. In a very kind of nuanced and very subtle way, um, Jesus, uh, inciting from Deuteronomy 6 now, shall not put the Lord your God to the test, 
Um, God is faithful. He's really faithful. Uh, but it is not you who test God. It is God who tests you. Uh, just a slight difference. Can we trust his promises? Yes. Do they work? Yes. Will he prove faithful? Yes. But that slight difference is, is God the one we put in the dock, as C.S. Lewis puts it, to be judged? Or is it that we are judged by him? That which God has promised finds its fulfillment not as a means of our self-gratification. God has not made this promise so that Jesus can jump off the temple and see if it works. Surely, it also points to that final temptation in the life of Jesus at Jerusalem, the passion narrative as we call it where continually he is urged to save his own life. But he says time and again, not my will, but your will. The story of my life is the story of my saying, my will, not your will. Um, Adam and Eve, the third temptation has no words. Simply the temptation of the eyes. The fruit looks good. Desirable for food and a delight to the eyes. Here comes the downfall. When her very conscience testifies that disobedience is delightful. Her own private desires take precedence over obedience. The first radical postmodern, where desire becomes the distinguishing mark between good and evil. Um, our desires are not their own justification. Um, another conversation around the Lintz family dinner table. Uh, Sarah, um, the middle daughter, now 23, full of life, but um, she often talks without thinking. Um, And our youngest son often thinks without talking. And she will uh, often... Uh, or more often than she should, uh, tell them um, how, uh, tell them everything that's wrong with him. Not everything, but his clothes don't match, or, uh, you know, he shouldn't do this, or, uh, and I'll often say to Sarah, Sarah, why did you say that to Lucas? And she'll say, well, that's how I felt. Well, hold it now, time out, right? Simply because you felt it, doesn't mean that it justifies saying it. It's not as if somehow your desire legitimates your action. But in a time like ours, where desire is its own end, if you want it, you do it. Right? No, desire 
Desire points us at something else, that which will satisfy it, not as its own end, right? And this story here in Genesis 3, or Luke 4, is meant to unmask our desires. And so the the point of Genesis 3 is not if you try harder, if you go buy that brownie, keep resisting. Don't give in. Exert your moral energy more. No, this is not about obedience. Now, sometimes it's about restraint for sure, but rather it's recognize who will delight and satisfy your desires. It's a call not merely to faithfulness and obedience, but rather it's a call to recognize who you are. Already, you are made to delight in that which God delights in. And you will not delight, you will not be satisfied until you're satisfied in Him. I believe it. I don't often live that way, right? This is the point of sin. Notice what happens to Adam and Eve afterwards. Their eyes are opened. I mean, wasn't the whole third temptation about the eyes? Didn't she see the fruit? What does it mean that our eyes are opened? This is the theological language of sin in Israel. Her eyes are opened, and she now sees who she is. And she tries to cover herself, right? She's ashamed, Adam and Eve are. Ashamed that they are naked, In fact, uh, uh, Genesis 2 ends with the claim that uh, they were naked and not ashamed. And immediately after the fall comes this consequence. I find it interesting that the first consequence of sin is not guilt, but shame. Uh, Ours is a culture, actually, that has a really uneasy relationship with shame. We don't understand it well. We don't have much place for it. We talk more about uh, uh, guilt and uh, innocence. But here, uh, again, you recognize that in the story, Adam and Eve feel uh, uh, something right deep in their bones, that they're now unworthy, they're polluted, they're dirty. Right? Their nakedness is a, a way of talking about their transparency. It's as if now uh, uh, somebody sees through them. They've been caught. They're defective in some sense. They're, uh, to use our language, they are insecure. Um, We talked a little bit about our tradition of individualism last night. And often, the traditions of individualism are designed to protect us from shame. Shame arises in community, mostly. And if you break the bonds of community, uh, the the cultural consequence often is that you don't take shame, then, as seriously. You've visited parts of Asia, in particular, which are far more traditional in their understanding of shame and shame-based communities you realize how radically different the West is. 
But this chronic loneliness that I spoke of last night, this lonely individualism, has a different face to shame. Ask any teenage girl that reads uh, the fashion magazines whether she is secure in who she is. There is no more profound than having raised two teenage daughters, no more profound uh, problem of identity than trying to live up to the ideal of beauty in our day. I mean, it's profoundly destructive Uh, and deep insecurity. You will never be as beautiful as the people uh, uh, surrounding us in those magazines. And uh, uh, it it is the plague on our existence today. Maybe because I'm a father and uh, uh, the like. Um, I'll talk in a moment about that plague on our existence that affects guides uh, going through that stage. But uh, 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 let me let me not go there yet. So Adam and Eve feel ashamed. They're 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 uh, they are guilty, yes. But th- there's also a sense in which their guilt is living, living in shame. They feel unworthy. They want to hide. They want the darkness. Uh, and they blame. They blame others, as we mentioned. And God banishes them from the garden. They're now unfit for his presence. They're expelled from the garden, which is now guarded, the end of chapter 3, with the flaming swords. Right? They're not going to come back into the presence of God except through judgment. That's the language here. These flaming swords, the judgment of God himself will be the vehicle which brings them back into his presence. God's presence now becomes a place of dread. Even in the garden after the, after the fall, after the act of disobedience, they try to hide from God. As if somehow God couldn't see them. I mean, have you ever had that experience and you wake up and you think, now, who, who, who did I think I was kidding? Right? As if God couldn't see me doing this, cheating on my taxes, or saying this angry word below my breath at my wife so that she wouldn't hear it, but I feel it, right? I mean, you know these, these kinds of stories. This sense in which somehow we forget the fact that this is God's world. It has that deadening fact on our own spiritual nerves. God does provide a covering for Adam and Eve, temporally, physically, a foretaste, I think, of the covering that we have in Christ, in whom is all the inheritance of God himself. And after lunch, then, the pilgrim journey begins. Here's the great Christian tradition that latches on as in Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's uh, uh, great story, The Christian Life, of the journey, of the pilgrimage. To this point, they have a place, right? The first story is of a home, a rest, a permanence. God is with them. But now, banished from the garden, they're set out on a journey. And all the twists and turns of this journey are meant as analogies for our own life. And there's so many... Uh, uh, analogies and the tasks to find a security, uh, internal security, 
external security uh, uh, rest from our enemies, to find significance, to feel like we're doing something important in life, to find a home, to build a tower, if you will, a temple of our own making, say Genesis 9, the Tower of Babel, to build something in which our name will be established, to make a name for ourselves. This is the prelude, I think, to the sojourn of idolatry. And now the image is refashioned in the image of the idol. And the story itself now subverted. The idol, like God, makes great promises. Um, That if you keep coming to me, I'll deliver. But the difference here is that the idols don't deliver on their promises. But we keep going back to them and develops a state of addiction. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga talks about the addiction of idolatry. It's a kind of nice phrase. Um, I didn't have alcoholism in my family, uh, but I've dealt with enough um, families in ministry uh, where an alcoholic uh, is part of this uh, family system and it becomes very dysfunctional. Everybody else can see the alcoholism as a, uh, a destructive habit, except the alcoholic, often. Right? And, and everybody else knows there's no good reason to keep drinking. Right? It just makes perfectly good sense to stop, except the one who keeps drinking. And in that addiction, and we're much more aware of the power of addictions in our day, um, the alcoholic is driven, almost controlled by this, this, this bottle. Right? They, they, they feel as if somehow it has become God to them. And if they keep going back, it'll deliver on the promise. But every time they go back, they don't get what they need. And so, instead of giving up the idol, they bow down to it yet more. Right? This is the nature of addictions. Now, alcohol may not be your addictions. Right? And we, we kid around about brownies uh, as being addictive. But deep in your own hearts are addictions right? uh, uh, that are to be understood theologically, not merely psychologically. And I want to uncover that kind of dynamic of that uh, idolatrous uh, 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 addiction. As Greg Beale talks about the idols... Uh, that we make uh, and in turn remake us uh, in their own image. That's all I'm going to do this morning. Uh, Afterwards, after lunch, we're going to go to um, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, which have really nothing to do about the law. I want to set you straight. It's a diatribe against the idols. And then the grand and climactic story of idolatry in all of the Bible, Exodus 32. The echoes of which we hear across the rest of the canon. Israel that makes this golden cow out of gold. And they are forever now recast in its image. 
And constantly the prophets tell Israel that they have eyes but cannot see. Just like that cow, right? They had ears, but they cannot hear. They have stiff necks. Where'd that imagery of the stiff neck come from? The golden calf, right? The hard-heartedness, right? All this imagery so powerful in the prophets comes from Exodus 32, right? And interestingly, and this is tomorrow morning, Jesus picks this up and now gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. The sensory malfunction language is so provocative. But uh, uh, after lunch, let's uh, take a moment if you've got some questions or thoughts or um, uh, comments uh, to make.